Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever. I am so excited for you to listen to today's interview. Dr. David Katz is a globally renowned expert in disease prevention, health promotion, lifestyle medicine, and nutrition. He's the founder and former director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, president and founder of the nonprofit True Health Initiative, and founder and CEO of Diet ID. The recipient of numerous awards for teaching, writing, and contributions to public health, David was a 2019 nominee for a James Beard Foundation Award in health journalism, has been a widely supported nominee for the position of U.S. Surgeon General, and has received three honorary doctorates. Fun fact, David has presented at conferences in all 50 states and in multiple countries on six continents. You guys, I have no words for today's interview. It is one of my all-time favorites, and I hope you enjoy it. Dr. David Katz, thank you so much for joining me. What a treat, Gianna. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. I have been following your work for so many years. I've heard you speak live at events. I've read your books. I've even participated with True Health Initiative. What I've always found so extraordinarily unique about your work is the way you're so pragmatic and holistic while somehow remaining almost diet agnostic, if you will, and just staying true to the science. But perhaps most profoundly unique and something that I deeply appreciate as a fellow word aficionado is the way you write. And the first thing I wanted to ask you was about how you're such a poetic writer. But then I found out recently that, because you come from the scientific background, but I found out recently that your mom is a poet. <laughs> so it's all in the genes, apparently. Well, first of all, Juliana, thank you so much. I appreciate your work very much and uh, really appreciate those kind words. But yeah, I, I am uh, a living testimony to the power of hybrid genetics, I suppose. My dad's a cardiologist, very analytical thinker. I mean, you can get him to listen to poetry, but you you, you kind of have to tie him to the chair. <laughs> and my mother is a very well-published poet. Uh, she's really terrific. Um, in fact, her, her latest work, uh, she just published a, another book at 82, The Limits of Light, which is a rendering of ancient Greek mythology into contemporary poetry, making it relevant today. It's really quite astounding, beautiful poems. So, wow. you know, I, I I don't know whether it really, if it's nature, nurture, both. Um, but, you know, I grew up with a real appreciation for language. I think it was just always in me. You know, I mean, it is the it is the way we connect most richly as homo sapiens. It, it's what sets us apart. All animals communicate, but, but we have the privilege of a fully uh, developed lexicon and can explore the intricacies of ideas with one another. So... I've always found the use of language, both spoken and written, extremely compelling and, and all too often neglected in our culture. It, it, it's a great power we let languish, I think. Oh, completely. Well said. That's so true. Okay. That's amazing. So I have to read your mother's new uh, book. I can't wait. And, and, and by the way, I, I published a fair amount of poetry myself. Uh, really? Yeah. yeah I, I published a poem in JAMA once. I mean, that's ancient history. It was 1993. 
but I've published in in some poetry anthologies. And my mom's always pestering me to do more of that. But <laughs> I have my pesky day job to worry about. So I keep telling her, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get to publishing poetry one of these days. I, I hope I do. I'd um, argue that your every single thing you've ever written is poetry. Like you make science <laughs> and medicine poetic and gorgeous. Like oh, you've already heard. It's amazing. It's so neat. It's it's so rare. Well, and, you know, there is something to say about that. And it's it's the power of metaphor. There's a really terrific book called I is an Other. I is an Other, you know, all about the power of metaphor and, and how it is intertwined with neurobiology and neuroanatomy. It's quite extraordinary. But one of my heroes, Juliana, is Richard Dawkins. Uh, he's arguably the, the most influential evolutionary biologist of the last century, maybe the most influential since Darwin. And for many years, he held uh, an endowed professorship at Oxford for the explanation of science to the public. And his writing, which inspired me uh, over all the years of, of my work, is extremely rich in metaphor. Because you know, essentially, a picture is worth a thousand words, we say. So if you can use words to create a picture in someone's mind, each of the words you use is amplified a thousand times. You're just telling a much richer story. So I, you know, I, I do think there's tremendous opportunity to leverage art to help people see a whole different vision of science. A hundred percent. And I wish more people would think about it that way because it's so hard to communicate, especially when we're talking about health and you know, nutrition and all the stuff that you talk about so eloquently. It's, it's a challenging thing to communicate. So you're beautiful at what you do with that. But you also have an MD and your MPH and master's in public health. And you've had successful creative accomplishments, including NuVal and Diet ID. I'd love to hear about those. And I'm also curious about how you were inspired to become an entrepreneur. Well, again, thank you, Juliana. And I do want to contextualize any conversation about success. You know, it, it's always nice to celebrate the achievements in our careers. The reality is none of us is succeeding enough. When I started my work in preventive medicine, public health, nearly 30 years ago, I, I finished my training in, in my second residency in 1993. I was fully committed to bending the obesity curve. You know, I wanted to see those levels come down in adults and especially in children. And I was fully committed to bending the chronic disease curve. I needed to see that come down to know that I was succeeding. I wanted to add years to lives and life to years. And, and those were the metrics of success. Gertrude Stein famously said a difference to be a difference must make a difference. And the reality is we're not making the essential differences. We're not seeing declines in obesity. We're seeing a rise all around the world. We're not seeing declines in chronic disease rates are going up all around the world. We're not adding years to lives and life to years. There's longer periods of chronic disability, more premature death. And oh, by the way, we're destroying the planet into the bargain. So, you know, I think by any realistic appraisal, we're losing the war. And, and I think we can celebrate our efforts even so we're recording this just prior to Thanksgiving. And, you know, certainly I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to try in the best of company to make these differences. But as you said at the start, I am a pragmatist. And when I measure my efforts against the pragmatic goals, uh, there isn't a lot of success there. You know, that's just honest. That That's not being hard on myself. And that's the reason for all these different things I've done. You know, rather than just do one thing and say, I'm going to stick at this for, you know, however long I can, 
I, I'm gauging everything against, is it making a difference at scale? Is it adding years to lives? Is it adding life to years? Is it doing something to help save the planet? And if the answer is no, not yet, then I need to do more. I need to try harder and I maybe need to try something new. So NuVal grew out of that, a nutrient profiling system where we scored foods on a scale of one to a hundred, the higher the number, the more nutritious the food to empower people to choose better at the supermarket. Diet ID grew out of that uh, because, you know, frankly, we manage what we measure. That expression comes from the world of business, but it certainly pertains in the world of medicine where what matters most we call vital signs and we measure them in everybody and everybody knows them. Every patient has some notion of what their blood pressure was when last checked. Every doctor certainly does. You know, it's, just, it, it's an intrinsic part of that relationship. Well, diet is the single leading predictor variable for premature death and chronic disease in the modern world, and we measure diet in just about no one. Now, present company excluded, dietitians routinely do that, but you know the, the much larger population that gets primary care never gets referred to a dietitian, doesn't have that privilege. Their, their diet quality is never measured. So we really need to democratize that. We need to make the assessment of diet quality as universal as the assessment of blood pressure. It's not going to solve the problem just to know what diet quality is, but we're never going to solve the problem if we don't know what diet quality is. We aren't ever going to manage what we don't routinely measure. So diet ID grew out of that. And you know, basically, I came up with a whole new way to assess diet. We can do it comprehensively in 60 seconds. And that was just too big an idea uh, to publish as an idea. We built a company around it. And, and what it all comes back to, Juliana, is... I take stock of our efforts. I think we're not winning this war, not for people, not for the planet, not yet. We have to try harder. We have to do more. We have to invent new solutions. And Diet ID is my latest effort to make a difference. What do you mean by the statement when you say we need to make diet a vital sign? Well, again, blood pressure is a very potent predictor of future health events. So in medicine, we call that a vital sign. It's a vital indicator of your current health status and what risks may lie around the next bend. We yeah. have abundant, clear, consistent, compelling evidence that the single leading predictor variable for all-cause mortality in the modern world today is diet quality. Yeah. Th th this was featured in an op-ed in the New York Times, August 26, 2019, entitled our food is killing too many of us. That was by Darish Mozafarian. I'm sure this audience will know Darry, Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, and Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture of the United States. But it's also the takeaway message from the Global Burden of Disease Study, which has looked at those same trends in 195 nations around the world. So if we know that diet quality lower than it ought to be is the single leading predictor of premature death, how can we fail to measure that in individuals how can we fail to manage that routinely? How can we fail to think of it as a vital sign? In order for it to be that, though, and by the way, this is a formal recommendation now of the American College of Cardiology. They've acknowledged, this was a publication in circulation about a year ago, diet is so important to the efforts in cardiology that it should be assessed in every clinical encounter. But they end with, if only we had a tool to do that. Uh. Well, <laughs> we do. That's, that's what we do at Diet ID. So, you know, we should, and now we can, and so we must. And if uh. we did that, if, you know, essentially if there were a field in everybody's electronic health record, blood pressure, heart rate, body mass index, 
diet quality measured objectively, we use the Healthy Eating Index 2015, that would raise awareness. I, you know, I think one of the things that would result is that many more physicians would look at that, kind of be rocked back on their heels and say, okay, you know, we need a dietary consult here because diet quality is really, really low. And I know that's a major health risk. And I don't feel that I have the expertise to fix it, but I can make a referral. So I, th- you know, I think it's a strong argument for team care. Amazing. I, is that me, the beeping? I think that is the smoke detector in the kitchen of the cat's house because my <laughs> wife is cooking something for Thanksgiving. Well, oh, I'll, tell no. her, I'll tell her I'm recording and she needs to, she needs to put out the fire. Okay. I think whatever, <laughs> whatever was on fire in the cat's kitchen is out. Sorry, folks. Sorry, what, what you're getting here is verisimilitude. The, 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 this is, you know, cat's family antics in real time. <laughs> That's adorable. Okay. All right. That was amazing. So the perfect segue. You talk about forks, feet, fingers, sleep, stress, <laughs> and love when it comes to your approach to health, which makes it super fun and actionable when communicating to all sorts of different audiences. So can you please explain for our audience today? When, when I finished my training in preventive medicine, again, that was at Yale in 1993, I, you know, I kind of thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to get a Nobel Prize? I, I, I should ask really erudite questions and boldly go where no one in science has gone before. And I, you know, I kind of thought I'd, I'd do that. I, I obviously was going to do it related to chronic disease prevention, but you know, I, I thought I would do clinical research in the traditional mold. And within weeks to at most a few months of my graduation, a paper came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association entitled Actual Causes of Death in the United States, now, arguably the most provocative title of a paper you know, we've ever seen. <laughs> and, and what the authors, Mike McGinnis and Bill Fagey, did was say, look, the stuff that appears on death certificates, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia, as causes of death, yeah, they are the proximal causes of death, but they're not really causes at all. They're effects. What caused the heart disease that caused the heart attack that caused death? What, what caused the diabetes that caused the vascular disease that caused death? So they, they dug deeper looking for the root causes and they enumerated 10 factors which collectively explained nearly all of the annual premature deaths in the United States. We talk about preventable death. Death isn't preventable, of course, but it's, de- <laughs> it's deferrable. We can it's get it to take a holiday. Mind that, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we can push it back. And, and, and that's the intent. So premature death is bad. Uh, death is inevitable. Premature death is not. So almost all of those premature deaths were attributable to a list of 10 factors. What caught my imagination is that the first three accounted for 80% of the action all by themselves. And they were tobacco, poor diet quality, lack of physical activity. And ever since, for ease of communication, I've called them bad use of feet, forks, and fingers. And if you could see me, you'd see me putting you know, two fingers as if they were holding a cigarette up to my lips, bad use of fingers. So I thought, well, I can't devote my career to asking the unasked question. I can't probe the unknown and boldly go where no one's gone before. What we already know is enough to eliminate 80% of chronic disease and premature death in the world, and we're letting it lie fallow. Knowledge isn't power if you don't use it. I must devote my career to translation, turning what we know into what we do. So that's what I've done ever since in, in every way possible, my clinical care, my teaching, my research, my writing. 
And then that list of three, feet, forks, and fingers, extends if you probe the literature on lifestyle medicine to several other key considerations. And uh, many of us use different terminology for the same set of six. Dan Butner of the Blue Zones uses a slightly different list, but it's still six core elements. And the other three are the quality and quantity of sleep, the quantity and tolerability of stress we're exposed to, and social connections. So I sum those up as sleep, stress, and love. So the six-cylinder engine, if you will, of lifestyle as medicine is feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. And if we can help people fire on all cylinders, more years in life, more life in years, and no, we don't prevent death, but you know, we go gently into that good night in the fullness of time. And those really are the blue zone blessings. Live long, prosper with vitality, go gentle in the fullness of time. That's a consummation devoutly to be wished. And uh, basically, I'm in a mission to turn, you know, the blue zone blessings into blueprints that can be replicated all around the world. Beautiful. So, okay, if you could sum up what those are, like what would like your overarching advice to people? I, I know you've, you've elaborated immensely in beautiful ways in so many different uh, resources that are available. But like, if you could sum up all of that, the um, the feet, forks, and fingers, like what would you what would you suggest? <laughs> sure, to sure, happy to. And and you know, I, I imagine Juliana, you'll link to either my website or Diet ID or True Health Initiative and. All of the things I've written, my columns, uh, thousands, I think, at this point, and and all the books are are available there. So to the extent I don't provide a comprehensive answer, there's plenty more available where this comes from. But, you know, diet, Michael Pollan nailed it in seven words, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And, you know, if, if you embellish out from Michael's pithy wisdom, mostly eat direct from nature, whole fruits, vegetables, grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds. And when you're thirsty, mostly drink plain water. Now, if you actually did that, focusing on the foods in some sensible, balanced array, you just couldn't get it wrong. You know, contrary, if you focus on any given nutrient, I don't care which one, you know, trans fat, saturated fat, omega-3, fiber, sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, doesn't matter. Added sugar, total sugar, uh, glycemic level, you, you know, basically, there are innumerable ways to eat badly, no matter what <laughs> nutrient you focus on. And Americans seem committed to exploring them all. And, 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 and by the way, there's no shortage of you know, fad diet authors willing to step up and say, hey, yeah, we can write a, a book about that. You know, here's how to avoid lectins you know, or, or you know, pick something you like. Or uh, here's how to maximize your intake of sirtuins. I think that's the latest trend now. It's, it's always some new version of Dumbo's feather. And, and by the same token, you know, the food industry is only too happy to put lipstick on a pig and say, yeah, we can make gluten-free junk food, no problem. We'll be happy to sell that at high profit margins. So focus on the foods, mostly fruits, vegetables, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, whole grains. Um, and, you know, when thirsty, drink plain water. Listen to Michael Pollan. It, it's spot on for diet. And, and you're right to think, well, that's not terribly specific. It's a theme and there are variants on the theme and that empowers individuals to love the food that loves them back. You, you can shop the theme. And if you have an ethnic style of eating, you can honor that, that cultural heritage and still eat optimally. Uh, we, we baked a lot of ethnic diets into the diet ID diet map for just that purpose. Physical activity, you know, I would argue that we have a really um, misguided attitude about it. You know, we use pedometers to count our steps. I think instead we should count our blessings. You know, if you can, <laughs> if you can move, run, jump, walk, dance, 
it's a blessing. Not everybody has that capability, right? I mean, you see somebody consigned to a wheelchair, and I think all of us feel a pang uh, of sorrow for that person. And we hope, gee, I hope that's temporary. They can get up again, or or I, I hope they've at least gotten used to it and it doesn't bother them anymore. And yet those of us with perfectly serviceable legs say, oh, woe is me when it's time to use them. It makes no sense. We have a native animal vitality. It wants to move. It doesn't want to be in a cage. It doesn't want to be on a leash. Let it free. Find a way to move that feels good. And it can be anything, right? Dancing is fun. That's, you know, that's not, oh, gee, I have to put on spandex and sweat and I hate that. I mean, it's, it's you know, have a good time. Put on the music you like best and rock out. So motion. Uh, physical activity means motion in your daily routine. Uh, fingers you know, tobacco should be consigned to the dustbin of historically horrendous ideas. I mean, really, the world should just eradicate it. It's horrible. So for heaven's sake, don't smoke, but also be careful of other toxins, uh, whether they're prescription or non-prescription, alcohol, of course, in excess. So, you know, basically treat your body well, so it will treat you well in return. And remember that healthy people have more fun. Sleep deserves more respect than it gets. We need enough and it needs to be of good quality. Uh, stress doesn't get as much respect as it deserves. We get way too much. We can't avoid it, but we can be effective at managing it. And by the way, different strokes for different folks. Uh, I taught in my clinic for many years, all the different ways of being mindful. But for me, meditation doesn't work. I've tried so many times and you know, you want to hear my meditation, Juliana? Yes, I do. Here it is. Mm, How many emails could I be answering now? (laughs) How many emails could I be answering? I mean, I just can't get past that. On the other hand, physical activity, in particular outdoors, is meditative for me. You know, hiking with my dogs, meditation. Riding my horse, meditation, right? So you do you. It's important to manage stress, but there's no one right way to do it. And finally, we are social animals. We need one another. John Donne maybe said it best, no one is an island. So we must connect we need social connections to be whole. We have to cultivate those. Absolutely brilliant. That's everything everyone needs to know about being healthy, like perfectly communicated. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, like done, we could just drop the mic. It's over. <laughs> Retire. <laughs> That's all everyone needs to hear. Um Thank you for that so much. Okay. You recently wrote this book with Mark Bittman, which is hilarious. It's called How to Eat. And I just think it's genius because why do we need a book to say that? But we do. We need a book to say that <laughs> and to teach people that. And actually, you just summed it up and that could be the entire thesis. But in the books and intro, you talk about, I love this, peeling a banana with power tools, kind of in the context of how we interpret and use science. And you say that you're adamant defenders of blending sense with science. And sense often takes a back seat when it comes to following science, which is when it comes to nutrition, especially, which is why we are all so enormously confused. And I would love for you to just kind of explain that. Well, thank you. And and, and Mark's a great friend and it, it was a privilege working with him. This followed two articles we did in New York Magazine uh, and Grub Street, which went viral. Uh, we, we did one that the editors asked for, uh, the last article you'll ever need to read about nutrition or something like that, the last conversation. <laughs> and inevitably it wasn't because it did well. So I said, hey, let's have another <laughs> last conversation. I said, well, was it really the last conversation? If we're no. having another? I said, never mind. Nobody's going to care. So we did two. 
And, and then, you know, we turned to one another and said, you know, we, we, we did a whole bunch of this sort of coffee table conversation, but there's a lot more when that came from, how about we do a book? And that's how the book reads that, you know, the novelty is mostly, it, it's a conversation. And we, we actually wrote the book that way. We sat down, we, we kind of uh, retreated uh, to, to Mark's uh, farmhouse and, you know, we just talked and recorded it all and then it got transcribed and, and the book was the result. So you can pull up a chair, join the conversation. And, and I would say, Juliana, that's probably, you know, the most important novel contribution. Mark is not a scientist, but he knows so much about food systems. I, I learned so much conversing with him. And I am a scientist, but I'm a scientist who says most of what I know that matters most is based on sense. You know, I, I raised five children to adulthood. My wife and I always agreed that running with scissors was a bad idea. Neither of us had ever read an RCT on the topic. Uh, <laughs> we, we always told our kids, look both ways before crossing a busy street, and yet I've never been able to find a meta-analysis. Uh, you know, so much of what humans know that really matters every day is observation, pattern consistency, and sense. So, you know, I've, I've argued in every venue at my disposal, science absolutely does have the power of a freight train to drive us toward those elusive, hard to reach truths. But sense must lay the tracks, otherwise you get a train wreck. You know, effectively, if science is a powerful tool, you know, and that's why I use the chainsaw example, a power tool that, that can do a lot of good and do things no other tool can do, but also can do a lot of harm if misused. Well, you know, essentially, science is the answering machine. Sense is where the questions come from. And there are no good answers to bad questions. There are no good results from RCTs that are designed with straw men in the mix. So you actually know the result before you ever run the study because you designed the study to produce a result. People may think that there's something sacrosanct about randomized controlled trials. They are so subject to bias. They're, they're so potentially manipulated. So, you know, science can be extremely powerful, but it has to be done right. And it can never be done right independently of sense. So Mark and I had a fun time batting that back and forth and, and you know, kind of fleshing that out in the book. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And everyone's interpretation just it just gets so confusing for everyone. Cause then the layperson is out there going, wait, what? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, like my 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 favorite example of that is like the whole macro confusion and about how like everyone, nobody knows what they're supposed to eat. Low carb diets will kill you. High carb diets will kill you. And none of it makes any sense. <laughs> exactly right. I completely agree. So, you know, again, I, I, to be clear, I am a scientist. I, I have conducted and published dozens of randomized controlled trials. I have conducted and published meta-analyses. I have conducted and published systematic reviews. So card-carrying member of the Evidence-Based Medicine Club. So I, that's why I think it's particularly important for me to be the one to say doesn't work without sense. You can manipulate science. RCTs are not sacrosanct. They, they, they are not, you know, basically the um, reliable bastions of truth that some people argue they are. There are ways to understand what's true without RCTs. RCTs have value for sure if you ask good questions. Science and sense are ineluctable partners. And again, we, we make that case in the book. And, and you know, we, we kind of felt like there should there shouldn't need to be another book about how to eat. Uh, you know, and, and we say that in our book entitled How to Eat. There shouldn't be a book entitled How to Eat because duh. You know, I mean, how many, how many times do we have to repeat to one another, eat food, not too much, mostly plants? Uh, you know, I, the, the book I wrote just before that, um, The Truth About Food is a monster. It's 750 pages. 
And in that one too, that was sort of my magnum opus. It's everything I know, how I know it. Uh, And by the way, proceeds from that one go to my nonprofit, the True Health Initiative, which in turn is dedicated to the proposition that there is massive global consensus among experts about how to eat for optimal health and sustainability. But in that 750 page, 200,000 word book, I say, this book should be seven words long and all seven <laughs> words should be plagiarized. Uh, I mean, they're not even mine, you know, they're Michael's, uh, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So, you know, what the hell are the other 199,993 words about? Well, they're explaining why are we so pseudo confused? How can we be so confused when the truth is so simple and hides in plain sight? And there are good answers to that because there are whole industries that profit massively by propagating pseudo-confusion about diet. But but I invite everybody listening into this to develop immunity to all of that nonsense. And, and remember, mostly eat vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and plain water when thirsty. Mostly do that. And then a little bit of whatever else you like and all will be well. Ah, uh, Amen. Okay. So speaking of tomes that you've written, you have a new one. Actually, our books are coming out like a day apart. Um, it's a, a new edition of Nutrition in Clinical Practice, right? Exactly. Uh, so medicine, nutrition and medicine. I was married to a doctor and I was in his, when we were together um, during medical school and I sat in on his nutrition classes and we all know how little and how underappreciated nutrition is in medical school. And yet I was walking around with my husband for 20 something years and everyone would ask him the nutrition questions. And, you know, and this is what I've dedicated my life to. So it's so interesting. What do you think about nutrition and medicine now and how is this evolving and how can this be more integrated into practice? Do you have hope for nutrition being integrated? I, this is what you do. This is American College of Lifestyle Medicine, all these. <laughs> right. Tell me more. Give us some right. hope. <laughs> well, well, first of all, a shout out to you. Right? I mean, you are a bona fide nutrition expert. And you know, I, from my point of view, a lot of what needs to be fixed should be directed to dietitians who have that, you know, that depth and breadth of training. So you know, just a, a strong shout out to the to the value of team care. Uh, in unity, there is strength. We we can do so much more together than alone. Partly because you know most physicians don't have the knowledge. Uh, partly because primary care practice doesn't allow the time. Uh, you know there are lots of impediments, but team care can solve those problems. So you know, here's to that. And then yes, I I do think it's important to educate physicians because they typically are the first line, right? I mean, that's the first encounter and, and all too often it just ends there. If, if yeah. there's no awareness of nutrition in primary care, you know, you think about most of America, certainly middle America, you know, people who, who maybe are not privileged with a great deal of medical knowledge or health literacy, if there isn't a recommendation from their doctor or their health professional you know, they're never moving beyond primary care to something richer, deeper. It's just not going to happen. So we we need to inform that interaction. And there are some beautiful efforts. So you mentioned the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. The lifestyle medicine movement is reverberating all around the world, and it really is making a difference. I mean, first, you know, there's a growing cadre of people who are committed to being genuinely expert in that space. But the, the rising tide lifts all boats, and as more people become expert in lifestyle medicine and preach the gospel, people who say, well, I'm never going to be expert in lifestyle medicine, but I, I appreciate the importance of it, I'm going to refer more often. And so those, those referrals to people with expertise in nutrition, in stress, in sleep, 
are more likely to happen. You know, all, all the things that, that populate that, that six-cylinder engine we talked about earlier. So that's a good thing. Uh, the other thing that I've done, is, you know, is try to create a gravitational tug. And, and my thanks to you, Juliana, for being on the Council of the True Health Initiative. We, we have roughly 500 world-leading experts and influencers from 50 countries, and who, by the way, have practices, personal practices, varying from vegan diets to paleo diets, but all coming together to say, we agree about what's fundamentally true and important. I, I think that's a real contribution to this effort because, you know, it, basically if physicians read the latest nonsense about diet in the New York Times, they're often dispensing misinformation to their patients. They're, they're often a source of confusion when they're supposed to be a source of, you know, the, the resolution of confusion. I think we have to fix that. Diet ID is a big part of the solution. So, you know, if we can put an objective measure of diet quality into everybody's electronic health record, we're basically saying, this is in your face now, deal with it. And when you know you can't deal with it, but you can't ignore it, it's an invitation to more referrals, more team care. And my hope is that better reimbursement models will follow. Another beautiful trend is culinary medicine. And, you know, shout out to people like David Eisenberg, uh, also Walter Willett, Christopher Gardner, a number of people who were involved in this effort. Uh, but I particularly think of David Eisenberg at, at Harvard. Uh, efforts with the Culinary Institute of America. But um, basically, more and more medical schools are saying we cannot teach medical students biochemistry and pat ourselves on the back saying, hey, they know nutrition now. Because you know it, it doesn't provide anything that they could actually say to a patient. It's, you know, it's, it, it may be useful to know in terms of the, the inner workings of their mind and understanding, but it's, it's not communicable. If you want to communicate nutrition to patients, you have to talk about food and yeah. eating and recipes. So culinary medicine says, let's teach medical students how to eat well. Let's teach them how to cook. Let's send them home with recipes they can share with their patients in clinic. I like that trend a lot and it's really catching on. And then finally, there is the, let's just keep hitting our heads against the wall. So this is the fourth edition of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. I, I wrote the first, I think 25 years ago. And the idea was, I'm a primary care physician. I was at the time. I'm no longer seeing patients, but you know, I'm seeing patients. I'm doing what they do. Let me do the hard work of getting my arms around nutrition as it can be applied in this context, even if the encounters are only 15 minutes long. And let me share that. Let me pay that forward. Uh, and, and let me put this effort before a jury of my peers and have them judge it. And you know, it's very gratifying to get to a fourth edition because it says that jury signed off and said, good work, keep it coming. So, you know, that, that has a role to play in medical education. It has a role to play in continuing medical education. It has a role to play as, you know, something that could be on the shelf in a clinic. Okay. I'm dealing with hypertension now. I, you know, I'm dealing with congestive heart failure. I'm dealing with insulin resistance. Is there a quick actionable synopsis of what I can do with diet here? Because I'm not an expert. And there is, we end every chapter you know, with, with just a couple of paragraphs on here are the clinical highlights. If you're dealing with this today, here's how you can use diet as at least part of the formula today. So as you say, I, you know, I've devoted my career to advancing the, the positioning of nutrition and medicine for the reason that, that we started with diet, diet quality, single leading predictor variable for all cause mortality and chronic disease risk. Physicians cannot neglect it. And we can append now, Juliana, how we eat has a massive influence on the fate of the planet. 
on climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, water utilization, land use, biodiversity, the start of pandemics. I mean, you know, everything that is urgently important and immediately relevant. And I, I would I would append, and I do this in all of my writing now, you can no longer be a health professional. You, you can't make that claim in 2021 and soon to be 2022 if you do not advocate frequently and ferociously for the health of the planet, because there are no healthy people on a ruined, uninhabitable planet. We are all environmentalists now. And so we need to know something about how diet pertains to the health of planet and people alike so we can advocate at the confluence of the two. You brought tears to my eyes. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> oh, David, I could talk to you um, forever. And you are so amazingly wise. And I'm so grateful for having you here. And I'm going to, we have to keep it short, unfortunately. So I'm going to end on one question. You have inspired change in profound ways to so many different types of audiences. And I need to ask you, because the theme of the show is, what do you, David, personally do to choose yourself now? Well, first of all, Juliana, thank you again so much for this opportunity. And, and you are a, an absolutely lovely, beautiful, gracious host. Um, you, you do this beautifully. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've done, I, I think, two things over recent years to choose me. Um, one is, some years back, I got a horse. <laughs> I love riding. I had been riding, but I didn't have a horse of my own. And getting a horse commits you both to the relationship. And Troubadour is is you know one of one of my beloved four legged friends, um, but also to the recreation. You know, I, I have to ride him to maintain the relationship. I have to ride him to keep him fit. It forces me to do the thing I love, which is a good thing because otherwise there's always work to get in the way. And oh, I can't go today. I can't go today. So I, I would say that was a major change because recreation had played a pretty small role in my life for a lot of years. And the other is um, I, at, at every opportunity, I fall in love with my wife again. I, my wife is a beautiful person uh, I, and, and I love her so much. But similarly, you can let work and life and stress get in the way. And, and the two of us communicate very well and and you know really cultivate that deep understanding of one another so we can keep falling in love over and over again for a lifetime and and that relationship sustains me when you know when everything turns bleak uh Catherine gets me through it wow oh my god david i love you i love your work thank you so much for everything you do and thank you for joining us and um happy healthy holidays and i can't wait to talk to you again thank you juliana all the same to you Forks, feet, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. That's all you need to know about optimal health. Absolutely so inspired. And I enjoyed every single word that came out of that interview. If you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, become a member of our Patreon page, patreon.com slash choose you now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash choose you now to have access to exclusive content. Please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us an email with questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.